Naturally occurring black pigments in vegetables, spices, and seeds have been found to have powerful anti-inflammatory effects. Black for Health liquid extract from Future Farm Botanicals combines the four most powerful of these plant-based foods, black garlic, black radish root, black peppercorn, and black cumin seed. It's an all-natural daily preventative against a host of possibly inflammatory issues. Black for Health supports your liver, skin, cholesterol, blood pressure, circulation, and immunity. It's a delicious tasting supplement with liposome complex for optimal absorption. For more information and to order, call 888-841-7216, 888-841-7216, or go to myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. That's my future. P-H-A-R-M, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. And while supplies last, buy two bottles of Black for Health and get two bottles of Wild Oil of Oregano free. That's a $55 value just for listening to Intelligent Medicine. Myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and we're talking to Nicolette Nyman. She's author of Defending Beef the case for sustainable meat production. And uh, before we get into a model for sustainable meat production, because for some people it it sounds like an oxymoron, at least the people uh, who produce the Lancet Report would have you believe that meat production causes widespread environmental uh, devastation uh, and is a waste of resources, uh, but we'll come back to that in just a moment. Uh, Let's address the health claims because uh, it is claimed that uh, you know, we get double dividends. We will slow global warming, we'll save the planet, uh, but we'll also save people because people consume too much meat and that's bad for them. What say you? Yeah, well, it is amazing how widespread that idea is. And when I started to write my second book, Defending Beef, I spent several months looking in great detail at all of the documents that were available from the federal government and other sources about what Americans are actually eating now and what they were eating a hundred years ago and what, how that, how those things have changed. And I was astonished to learn that it, the changes in our dietary patterns weren't at all what I had heard over and over again. And specifically with respect to red meat, for example, our red meat consumption today is about the same that it was a 100 years ago. What has increased, we are eating more chicken and fish, that's true, and turkey. So there's more white meat consumption and more fish mm-hmm. consumption. But pork, beef, uh, those are those have been pretty stable. We've d- reduced our That's what our people used to have for breakfast in, in the day, you know, prior to the introduction of uh, refined cereals, you know, uh, Kellogg and Post in the in the beginning of the exactly. late uh, 19th century. They, there was a reform movement, which actually came out of the Seventh-day Adventists, who believed that meat uh, was something that caused uh, licentiousness and uh, uh, bad thoughts. It was part of an anti-masturbation right. campaign, uh, you know, to right. put it I know. It's bluntly. Pretty, I read The Road to Wellville. Yeah. <laughs> I learned all about it in there. And, yeah, it... It was, um, it, it's an idea that's been out there for, you know, quite a while. And, um, but when you actually look at the dietary patterns of the United States, you know, we've sort of heard in the sort of popular, it's, it's a popular myth that we've dramatically increased our meat consumption and especially our red meat consumption and that we've increased our animal fat consumption and that these are the reasons that we've had this dramatic rise in diabetes and obesity and, you know, all the sort of metabolic syndrome aspects. And in fact, 
when you actually look at what Americans are consuming, we, we consume less, quite a bit less animal fat now than we did 100 years ago. We consume a lot less butter, a lot less whole milk, less red meat, especially uh, certain types of red meat like lamb has that consumption has dropped dramatically and egg whole egg consumption is way down and what we've increased we've increased our total caloric intake quite a bit but almost all of that has been carbohydrates and especially refined carbohydrates and a lot more sugar and so it's this strange um you know misconception that even pervades you know the medical community i i don't know if i mentioned this in that last time we spoke but i have two sisters that are both mds and they both have told me they had literally zero uh, instruction about mm-hmm. diet and nutrition mm-hmm. other than, you know, a connection between salt and high blood pressure or something like that. You know, But there was no discussion about nutrition and health. And when it was, it turns out a lot of that was not bad information. You right. Know? It was but, the low-fat diet, you know, avoid cholesterol, yeah. you know, these anachronistic advice exactly. that's now been disproven. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's just, it's, it's. What I have found is when I'm, um, you know, interfacing with someone at Kaiser Permanente where I get my health care, I'm often being spoken to either for myself or one of my children by a, by a, a medical doctor who really doesn't know very much about nutrition. And when I begin having a conversation, it becomes apparent that I know more than they do about the topic. And so that's really troubling because you know, we've, you know, we've kind of gotten this, you know, so many doctors are getting their, their information about nutrition and health just from that sort of mainstream media, which really oversimplifies and actually gets a lot wrong. And so, um, you know, I think this idea that, um, you know, we should eat less meat and that we're, that we're eating a lot more meat now and that we're eating a lot more animal fat and that's the cause for health problems. Um, if you just look at the data, it's very clear that that's untrue. Right, and then we have also to distinguish between uh, refined animal products, uh, processed meats versus uh, natural meats. And, you know, there's a whole argument to yeah. be made there about the additives and, you know, the adulterants uh, that they may be causing the problem, not the meat per se. When we do uh, studies on meat, we generally include, uh, you know, bologna and salami and um, processed meat products with uh, a, alongside grass-fed beef and pork. And that really isn't a yeah. fair comparison. It, it, it's, it's a really important point. And I, and I, when I, when I, again, when I was writing Defending Beef, I looked at literally every study I could get my hands on. I spent many months reading the original research on all of the studies I could, I could get a hold of about meat and health and especially red meat and health. And the, the most interesting, uh, research was those where they attempted to make a distinction where they actually looked at all of the studies that had already been done about red meat and health and asked the question, was a distinction made between different kinds of meat and processed meat versus unprocessed meat, for example? And it was found that there is absolutely no connection between any health problems and meat that hasn't been processed. So there's, 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 a, there's a great body of research that doesn't make any distinction and then comes up with the conclusion that there are negative health impacts from eating meat. But then if you do break it down and you take out the bologna and the process, you know, the deli meats and things like that, that's where you may have, in fact, a connection due to nitrates or other processing issues 
that I think meat glue we and, still don't and these fully kinds understand. of things. You know, these meat extenders. Right, exactly. And, There's yeah. a, a lot of stuff that goes into processing. This yeah. nitrate gets a lot of the attention, but that may not, in fact, even be the culprit. So, um, yeah, it's so much. There's so much wrong with so much of the um, health and diet-related research mm-hmm. that's been done. And in fact, I saw a video clip from uh, a major conference on this topic in, I believe it was it took place in Switzerland last year, and the speaker um, was Dr. John Yonidas, yeah, and he you made need the it, right. point that, and he's he's the guy he, he's famous for writing a a study called uh, uh, the vast majority of studies are wrong. <laughs> you know, he's, a, he's yeah. sort of a skeptic, <laughs> of, he, right? And he was in this clip, um, Dr. Walter Willett from the Harvard School of Public Health, who's also on the Eat Lancet Commission, mm-hmm. and who's been a huge, you know, proponent of reducing meat consumption for a long time. And there's this an amazing interchange between the two of them at this conference that was caught on video, where basically, you know, Walter Willett kind of confronts uh, John Yonidas and says that you... Um, you know, you, how can you, you're not, you can't really throw out all this research. And he basically responds by saying, well, the, the research has almost no scientific merit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, a, it's a, it's an amazing statement because he's a very well respected, yeah. he's on faculty at Stanford right now. He's an incredibly intelligent, respected man who's just looking at the science. How well done are these yeah. studies and how, how believable are they? Uh, and he shows that there are so many problems with the research yep. that it's almost worthless. So I think this is, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm relieved that finally, uh, it's kind of being revealed how weak all of this evidence is. But then you come, you know, it, these things persist. So you have the Eat Lancet report that's coming out now. And thank God there's so much blowback, as I believe you said at the beginning of this conversation. But, you know, but still, the, the report is still out there, and it's going to do, I believe, a lot of damage. And, and you know what? Whenever I see something like this, I always say, "Let's follow the money trail. Let's look at the economic interests that could line up behind this proposition." Obviously, not uh, you know the meat, beef, cattle industry, but that's actually a relatively small industry compared to the processed food industry and agribusiness, uh, which makes uh, corn. Uh, soy and then tra- and wheat, cheap uh, agricultural ingredients, and then transforms them into faux foods, basically foods that are processed and flavored and made appealing. And actually, I'm, I'm googling here. I google Google the topic veganism boom and food companies. And here's what I come up with: uh, the Australian Financial Review. The veganism boom does more for food company profits than for the planet. And, yeah, uh, and this one, I saw that article. Here's Forbes, it, it, here's why you should turn your business vegan in 2018. It's a business opportunity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in fact, um, it is shocking how quickly this idea of veganism has, it's been out there for a long time, but just in the last several years, it's sort of been captured by the processed food industry. And all of a sudden now they're seeing a business opportunity there. And, um, you know, as Marianne Nessel really does argue really well in her books, the more processed the food is, the more opportunity for profit there is mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. And just real whole foods don't make all these, you know, that's money, not much of a margin you know, at all the stages. Yeah. For, for all these different corporations along the way. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's another 
strange aspect of the vegan um, push for this is that really it's all about promoting processed foods for certain, you know, for certain entities. I mean, certainly there are people who are, you know, passionate about the animal rights side of it. And there are other, you know, people that have other beliefs that are making them want to do this. But there's also now this whole new question of a business opportunity for the processed food industry. And they're seeing a great opportunity and they're jumping on it. This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Healthy Aging, providing you with the unique energy support of Pure NT Factor. NT Factor is the only nutritional formula clinically proven to reduce fatigue, whatever the cause, whether it be age, illness, or just being run down. NT Factor from Nutritional Therapeutics repairs damaged cells and restores healthy bacteria in your digestive tract. Clinical trials have shown NT Factor reduces fatigue by almost half, and it even reverses some symptoms of aging. I've been taking NT Factor for years with a 45-day money-back guarantee of nothing to lose. To order, call 800-982-9158. That's 800-982-9158. Or go to ntfactor.com. That's ntfactor.com. There's a proposal at Los Angeles. Uh, they're considering mandatory vegan meals for school lunch programs. You weighed in against uh, that in a recent blog on Facebook, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know... I just continue to be astonished by how much I actually got very involved in in the Episcopal Church discussion. I'm uh, I'm a delegate from my local church, and I and I presented a resolution at our our last um, you know annual conference a few months ago, and it was a similar kind of a deal where there was someone uh, in in one of the congregations that wanted to mandate. That you had to have vegan food offered at your any church function, and then someone else wanted to ban red mm-hmm. meat from right. church functions. This is not even the vegan and option. It, I get the vegan option, but they wanted to make it mandatory for kids to consume vegan meals. Yeah, well, there was the the mandatory part was the one who wanted to get rid of red meat, so that was going to ban that. And then there was a, and then there was this thing saying you had to have a vegan choice at um, and any church function. But to me, what's so strange about that is that we've never dictated, you know, what people by law, I mean, mm-hmm. it's yeah. really crossing a threshold that has not been crossed before. And I find it just shocking that there's even sort of a mainstream discussion taking place thinking this might be okay. What happened in the church process that I went through with this issue was I um, I was opposing a res- those resolutions I just described, and I offered another resolution that's kind of an alternative, saying, you know, food and diet and health are really important, and let's make sure that we are having a discussion within our congregations about healthy eating and um, trying to bring food to, you know, church discussions that is health supporting and and is real food based and that sort of thing. And that resolution got a broad support that my, the resolution I wrote introduced was passed by a wide margin. The other resolutions about veganism and anti-red meat failed. Hmm. And I was, you know, very relieved about that. But what was interesting to me about the whole process was I found that there were a lot of people who didn't want to speak publicly about it. They were hesitant to stand up against those ideas because they kind of feel like that's 
what maybe they're supposed to be believing is okay. This idea because because it's they've like heard from the doctor signaling, all these years that breastfeeding is better. Yeah, it's, it's like virtue signaling. It's like virtue signaling. Yeah. Yeah, they, they don't yeah, want to be exactly. on the wrong side of that issue, you know, even if they... Exactly. Like, I don't want to be the one that's standing up for something that's sinful, <laughs> you know, right. kind of thing. And but, but people kept coming up to me in the hallways and um, talking to me on the side and saying, thank God you're standing up for this. And it was really interesting. I realized there was a psychology of it that I wasn't fully aware of until I went through that process. So part of what's happening is there's kind of this group think within the public health and medical communities right now, and definitely in the environmental community, kind of pushing everyone in this, you know, like, like this tide that's sweeping people in this direction. They think they're supposed to, quote unquote, mm-hmm. you know, believe this way. And Fortunately, there are, you know, there's a counter push <laughs> coming from people who are saying, you know, the science isn't very good on some of this stuff with the health. And in the regenerative agricultural movement is really coming on strong with tremendous field studies and anecdotal information and books and reports that are showing the incredible value of diversified farming of real food and of animals as part of a diverse system that really mimics nature. That's what that's what the key to regenerative agriculture is all about. It's trying to function the way nature functions. And nature is an incredibly intricate system of connections. It's all about relationships between fungus and animal and plant. And in like even in the cow's rumen, like we were talking about before, the fun, a lot of those microorganisms are fungal microorganisms. You have all different kinds of, I mean, literally millions of microorganisms living in that digestive tract. The same thing is true in the soil. Mm-hmm. You have microorganisms that are funguses. You have um, bacteria. You have all kinds of different microorganisms. And that diversity and those connections between all those living things is what makes these systems work. Is it, is it possible that, really that our over-reliance on antibiotics and the use of uh, synthetic feeds, you know, we literally feed animals, uh, you know, newspaper mixed in with uh, uh, molasses sometimes, changes their yeah. microbiome in a harmful way that, that may uh, cause them to be more methane emitters? Well, and to produce food, I mean, definitely there's there's a line of research examining the the methane emissions from different um you know different methods of raising livestock unfortunately this has all been funded by big agribusiness wanting to show that the feedlot system is the most efficient mm-hmm. and therefore the least emitting yep. and so you know there's there, there are problems with that research but in terms of whether the animal is really functioning as part of an ecosystem and is adding back into the system mm-hmm. in a helpful way, as I was talking about before, with their, you know, their mouths are clipping the vegetation and pruning it, which allows for more diverse vegetation to grow. Their, um, their urine and their manure is adding fertility and moisture back into the soil. And their hooves are actually pressing seeds and vegetation back into the soil that helps feed the microorganisms of the soil. None of that stuff happens in a feedlot, you know. So when you think about how to raise animals in an ecologically sound way, you have to think about 
how do you create a system where the animal is playing the same role that a wild animal would play in a natural ecosystem? Is it, and is it a that's little bit what possibly is, we oh, need to move towards? Is this a little bit possibly elitist? Because you know we can talk about yes, get grass-fed beef and and look for that at Whole Foods. But you know if I go to Whole Foods and I see that the conventional hamburger is you know four and a quarter a pound, and, and the uh, grass-fed hamburger is uh, twelve dollars a pound. You know, I'm going to make an economic decision there, and some people simply can't afford it. Uh, is there a way to make this uh, affordable, sustainable, uh, able to support the world's population? Well, yeah. I mean, I have a, a lot of thoughts about that topic. And, you know, my first book, Righteous Pork Job, I had a whole chapter where I talked about the affordability question. And it's something that comes up a lot, because if you, as, as you say, if you just go into a grocery store and look at the grass-fed option, it's generally going to cost quite a bit more. Um the reasons for that are are many, and one of them is simply because so much of the, the whole system, whether it's the slaughtering system or the distribution system or our agricultural subsidies, are actually supporting that big industrial model. And anything that's being produced, you know, totally grass-fed is tending not to benefit from any of those kinds of uh, systems and subsidies. But... Uh, the other aspect of it is that you can purchase lots of different parts of the animal and you can almost always, if you know where to shop in your community, you can find someone who is selling, whether it's a farmer's market or other ways of buying more directly from farmers, you can buy other cuts of the animal that are not simply a pork chop or you know, a T-bone steak mm-hmm. and you can get actually more nutritious food and at a much cheaper price. And it can be very affordable to eat well. And a lot of the people I know who eat extremely high quality food are people on a very limited budget. But they make, you know, they figure out more creative ways to get their food from, you know, from not just going into a grocery store and buying everything in the same place there. You can also, even in a typical grocery store, you can often find some of the non-middle meat cuts and do, you know, slow cooking mm-hmm. and, you know, braising and Right, so yeah, forth. we tend to think so of beef of as like a, a filet mignon or a 22-ounce porterhouse steak, but it doesn't have to be that. In fact, when we make stews and when we combine uh, meat yes. with vegetables, uh, we sort of amp up the nutritional value of, of the meat in, in their proper role in the diet, not just as a big slab of meat and then maybe, you know, uh, some uh, mashed potatoes on the side. Yeah, exactly. In fact, you know, my husband, Bill Nyman, is a very well-known person in the food world and in the meat world. And he always says that he, he's perfectly happy to eat a steak, but that is not his preferred choice. He likes that slow-cooked, you know, braised, fattier meat a lot of times. And he he loves having a lot of the various parts of the animal, whether it's, you know, pork or beef, uh, that are not, you know, just a chop or, you know, a steak. And he often talks about how that's actually the better meat. And if we, with a little bit of knowledge of how to cook meat, you can access that meat and get it at, a, at an affordable price. So I do think, although the, the money issue is real, it's a little bit of a red herring because we get caught up in this idea of just comparing side by side at a grocery store what these two things cost. And then we conclude, well, this isn't affordable. And really, there are a lot of other ways to deal with that. So we really need a, a major reform of our system and a re-education of, of Americans. Uh, how do we go about doing that? Where do we start? 
Well, one of the most important things I think, I mean, I just kind of alluded to it a moment ago, is people really need to spend more time in their kitchen and learn how to cook. And I, again, I know people say, well, you know, we're busy and, you know, we have busy lives. And I know that's true. <laughs> I, I have two young kids and, you know, we have a farm and a business and so forth. So I can relate to that concern. Um, but we really, you know, Americans spend on average four hours a day watching television. <laughs> right. There are things that we can do to, you know, to redirect some of the time in, back into cooking and starting with real whole ingredients and producing our own food. And I think that's, that's one of the most important things we can do because it's going to drive, uh, you know, I think food and agriculture in the right direction and it's going to, um, dramatically improve people's health. So, so we need to vote with our consumer dollars and shape the industry in that fashion, reject some of their ersatz uh, uh, foods, the faux foods, the fast foods that are often proffered to us. Well, 34% of Americans' calories come from fast food yep. today. So that is, that's a shocking number um, when you consider that, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, that number would be close to zero. And we, we have made dramatic changes in the way we eat now, and we're seeing, as a result, the most unhealthy population we've ever had and one of the most unhealthy populations in the world, in the developed world. So, you know, we really have to make these changes in the way we eat. I also think, I mean, for myself, it's really been a journey of, you know, the last couple of decades of really trying to get food that's closer to the source, you know, trying to buy food that hasn't been stored or on a shelf or frozen or shipped from a long distance away, trying to understand where it came from, how was it produced. You know, I try to avoid chemicals. That doesn't mean you always buy the organic item, preferably. That's probably a better choice. But I try to get something that was raised near where I live, um, that, that I'm comfortable with how it was produced. And I try to have a lot of diversity in my diet. And these are things, these are changes that people can make over time. Anyone who lives in an area where they can have a garden, I think, should attempt to grow some of their own food, even if it's just herbs, which is really simple to grow, and you can even do it on a terrace if you live in an apartment. You know, just have begin to have some connection to how your food is produced and producing some of it yourself if you can, and eating as much real whole food as possible rather than having apple chips have an apple. You know what I mean? And just sort of thinking every part of your day, what you're eating, is this, how close is this to being the real whole food? And I think that is the shift. And then, of course, sodas, <laughs> just getting away from sodas. Yep. But from the agricultural side of it, I think we need to get away from subsidizing. There are yep. major public subsidies. We're subsidizing the big industrial model today, and we're not supporting truly regenerative kinds of agriculture. So if we're going to subsidize agriculture, which I think there's a good argument to do, we should be subsidizing truly regenerative systems that are not based on fossil fuels and not based on chemicals, but are actually supporting the life of the ecosystems and the soils and and not you know and, and are supporting clean water and so forth. And quite honestly, animals are a really important part of that. So there's an alternative to uh hog lagoons uh, and, uh, you know, uh, animal raising that pollutes our uh, rivers and estuaries and causes uh, algae yeah. blooms and uh, environmental devastation. 
Absolutely. Those none of those things are inherent in livestock production. Those are those are symptoms of a system where things are being done badly. And the whole time that I worked as an environmental lawyer in New York on the questions of sustainable livestock production, you know, I was specifically fighting against the use of those lagoons because they are inherently environmentally problematic for groundwater and for surface water and even for the air. But that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with raising livestock per se. That means that that's an industrial model that probably you know, never should have been created. We went down that path for a few decades in this country, and now it's time to you know, undo the damage of that. But the animals need to be in the system. Pigs and um, chickens and turkeys are, you know, omnivorous animals that can be, um, that can be part of, you know, complex farming systems. They can eat all kinds of byproducts, farm byproducts and food waste and they can, uh, recycle a lot of things that humans can't or won't eat. And cattle are, can, um, exist almost entirely on grass in most of the geography of the United States for most of the year. And the dairy cows and the beef cattle and the sheep and the goats, they should be doing that. They should be out there um, grazing and utilizing this land that can't be used for farm production to produce meat and milk that humans can consume. So there's a whole different approach to agriculture that we should be pursuing in this country that would lead to healthier food and would be ecologically beneficial instead of damaging. Well, I want to thank you for being an outspoken advocate for uh, sustainable agriculture and for a reasonable approach to a diet, a diet which uh, includes uh, healthy animal protein, uh, not to the exclusion of uh, plant-based foods, uh, but um, also for a renaissance in our approach to how we raise food in this country. It's really uh something we need to do. And, and fortunately, you're involved. Uh, your husband, yeah, uh, thank Bill you. Nyman, Nyman Ranch, yeah. uh, is a pioneer in this in this field. And more and more people are getting on board with it. And the public needs to support this initiative with your consumer dollars and your votes. I think it's great. Yes, thank you so much. And I, I just want to say, kind of to leave on an optimistic note. Yeah. When I attend these, you know, ecological farming conferences, like I just did a few weeks ago in Kentucky, I am really struck by how much excitement there is and how much movement there is within the agricultural community towards these ideas. There's, you know, the policymakers in Washington are like decades behind, you know, but the practitioners are seeing the dramatic improvement that happens when you adopt these truly regenerative methods. And there's a lot of excitement and interest within agriculture and movement in this direction. So it's not that, I don't think it's getting that much media attention, but I feel like uh, a lot of good things are actually happening in agriculture and there's more and more recognition, not just that we have to do things differently, but that there is a much better way to do things. And so I think people, um, you know, within the agricultural community are really beginning to see the light on this and, and gravitate towards that light. And I find that really exciting. I have a lot of hope for what's happening in and that's going to produce a lot of healthier food and it's going to be more widely available and it's going to be less expensive. And so, um, but as you say, the consumers have to support it and seek it out to keep that movement going in the right direction. Well, that's really a, a great note on which to conclude. 
Uh, thank you very much, uh, Nicolette Hahn-Nyman. And the book is Defending thank Beef. Thank you for having me. And uh, you can also be followed on uh, Twitter and on Facebook. And do you have a website as well where you get the word out? Um, I have a little website that's just NicoletteHahnNyman.com. And, um, and then, as you said, we have a, a very active discussion on the Twitter for Defending Beef and on the Facebook for Defending Beef. Okay, hashtag at Defending Beef. Yeah, yep, it's Defending Beef. Excellent. Uh, that, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. As an Intelligent Medicine listener, you know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. But vetting your sources and tracking down the exact products you need can be a hassle. That's why I'm inviting you to browse my online supplement dispensary at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. My specially curated professional-grade supplements are fulfilled via the Fullscript network. Fullscript is the safest and most convenient way to purchase my medical-grade supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA-compliant and offers world-class support. Just go to drhoffmanstore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll also receive free shipping on all of your store orders. That's drhoffmanstore.com. drhoffmanstore.com.